0: Yeah, we agree with that prayer, Father, um, that you would open our hearts. We're we're grateful for your word. Thank you that it's true, that it's a gift of your love toward us. Um, We want to be people who really receive it, um, who don't just hear it and walk away unchanged, but who take it in and let it do its good, transforming work in us. And so, Holy Spirit, will you help and help us to um, see Jesus and increase our faith in him we pray in his name, amen. So our scripture, uh, any guesses about our scripture reading? It's Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10, and we'll read to verse 17. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So what we've been seeing is that uh, from now until whenever Jesus returns, we are in a battle the Christian life is characterized by a fight, and it 's not a fight with um, it's it's not a like a fight with a political party it 's not a fight with your spouse or with your kids or with your neighbor who can 't keep his dog quiet or i don 't know what does your neighbor do it 's not a fight with any of them it 's a fight with uh the devil, with spiritual forces of evil, Paul says, in the heavenly places. Um, and so we have an enemy who is evil, he's powerful, uh, he's methodical, like he wages war against us in deliberate, uh, methodical ways. And, and you heard it, that Paul, Paul's call to us is to stand against his schemes. It's not to beat the devil, because he's already been beaten, Uh, It's not to go around picking fights with the devil because it's a sure thing, family, that he's going to bring the fight to us. The call is to stand firm against his schemes, to stand and not fall when he comes at us. Um, One of the things we've seen is that the way the devil comes at you and me is the way that he's come at humanity since the very beginning. Um, He basically does to us what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and that means that he comes at us with deception. He comes at us with a lie. And that lie can have like endless variations, um, but it's always aimed at getting us to distrust the goodness of God, uh, to resist his love, to reject his grace. Remember, that's what happened in the garden. Um, in the opening of the Bible, uh, the, we, we get this um, interesting detail that um, Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed, and uh, what's that about? I mean, it's, it's about more than just not wearing clothes, right? It's about being um, vulnerable and having nothing to hide. It's like they knew who they were, and they knew that they were right uh, with God, and right with each other, and right with the rest of the world, and uh, they knew that they were presentable to God, and that they didn't have anything to hide, and then the snake comes in with this lie and and do you remember like what does the snake call into question it's not it's not God's power it's not God's existence um, the devil knows that um, if he can get Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness if he can call that into question then he can destroy everything like their relationship with God but also with each other with their very selves um, and so he says, you can't really trust God's goodness. You can't really believe that God loves you and wants the best for you. And family, that is a lie. It's the ultimate lie. Uh, believing it corrupts everything. It's like, it's like a drop of ink that, that falls into a clear glass of water and discolors the whole thing. Or I've been thinking about this recently. We have a new puppy. who um, If there's a thread, this, this dog will find the thread. And, and believing the lie is just like grab, grabbing that thread and just pulling pulling it until the whole thing is unraveled. Um, And to some extent, we do believe it. We do believe it. To some extent, we doubt God's love, and we resist his grace. We question his goodness. Um, We struggle with believing that God really receives us and accepts us. And meanwhile, the devil plays all of that distrust to his own advantage And he keeps coming at us with the temptation and accusation. And in response to this attack, Paul says, be strong. He says, stand, stand. Uh, Put on the whole armor of God. So what is this armor? That's what we're talking about. We started looking at the armor last week. One of the things Paul's doing in this passage is he's drawing from a picture of God that we get in the Old Testament in the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 59, there Isaiah describes God going out against his enemies in order to rescue and save his people. And he envisions God as a warrior putting on pieces of armor for the battle. Here's what we read there uh, in Isaiah 59. He, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So you see, in Isaiah, God's armor is the armor that God himself wears. Uh, God's breastplate of righteousness is a way of talking about God's own righteousness. It's the righteousness that, that belongs to God that is properly his. And now, Paul is telling us to put on the whole armor of God. Um, so the, the armor that we're to take up and put on, it's not armor that we have to go out and like uh, purchase somewhere or that we have to go out and create for ourselves. Um, it's God's armor— that God gives to us. It's God's armor that God gives to us. Now why is, like, so what? So what? Why is that important? Think back to the garden. After Adam and Eve, um, they they stop trusting God, they eat from the tree, they make this decision to go their own way. Um, Do you remember, like, immediately what happens, what they did? They become aware of their unrighteousness. Almost instantly. They become aware of their unrighteousness. Here's what we read. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I think that's so interesting. Like, our first move when we sin is to cover ourselves. Adam and Eve did it, and so do we. It's like they knew that there was now this rift in their relationship with God, and their instinct, their first instinct, Was to take matters into their own hands to try to address the problem themselves and so they covered themselves with fig leaves and they ran and they hid and and do you see family that that's like exactly what the devil wanted and that's exactly what the snake was up to um all of our efforts to show ourselves worthy and approved they go back to this fig leaves fig leaves like attempts to deal with this deep disease within us. And the devil piggybacks on all of that and aggravates it and he highlights the rift between us and God and he underscores the deep sense of disease with, in each one of us. And, and he wants us um, to think it's up to us to make it right. Uh, he wants us to think it's up to us to make ourselves acceptable, that it's up to us to prove ourselves you know, fig leaves—they're a part of God's creation, so they're good gifts. They're good gifts, but they don't make for great clothing. I don't speak from experience; I'm just imagining. I invite you to imagine with me—just the scratchiness, the itchiness. I guess fig leaves—they have maybe a velvety side, but still, come on—you're not going to want to wear that around. Um, <laughs> fruit of the loom. <laughs> fruit of the loom. Yeah, I'd rather go with fruit of the loom. Um, earlier in Ephesians, Paul talks about. Um, God's people taking good gifts and uh, and twisting them, using them in ways they weren't in, intended to be used. And so he talks about God's people taking the good gift of God's law and essentially using it to justify themselves. Instead of living into the heart of it, like loving their neighbors as themselves, loving God with all of who they were, um, they made uh, legalistic conformity to the law uh, a barrier between themselves and other people. Um, they convinced themselves that they were the ones who really got it, that God's blessing was ultimately just for them. And and so what are they doing? Like, they're turning this good gift, they're turning the law into an outfit of fig leaves. They begin to think that that snazzy suit is going to be the thing that makes them right with God. And I wonder, like, how you do this. I wonder how I do it. We're confronted with our inadequacy, and we say, okay, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to follow Jesus better. I'm going to make sure that I'm believing the right things. I'm going to check my behaviors, and I'm going to weed out all the bad ones. My, my New Year's resolutions are going to just be tip-top and unstoppable. I'll just be a better person. Like, I'll have faith. I'll pray more. I'm going to do it better. And, like, all of that's good stuff, right? Like, we wouldn't look at any of that and say, oh, it's a bad idea to be more faithful, or it's a bad idea to follow Jesus, or it's a bad idea to pray. No, it's all Good, all good gifts, but horribly distorted when we bring them into our little plans of saving ourselves, covering ourselves, when we employ them in our efforts to make ourselves righteous. I wonder what fig leaves you have, and I wonder if you're looking to them um, to make you acceptable and right before God if you think that those are going to be the things that get God to bless you and love you Um, family the essence of the gospel is the exact opposite do you know that it's the exact opposite you don't have to cobble together um, some kind of presentation to make yourself acceptable before God like God takes his righteousness and he gives it to you gives it to you just makes it yours makes it yours The good news is that God is committed to making our relationship with him right. He's committed to it. He's way more committed to it than you are. He's committed to restoring our righteousness. You know, as soon as Adam and Eve stopped trusting God, they just assumed that they needed to clothe themselves, that God was out to get them, and so they needed to run and hide. But do you remember how the story goes? Um, God starts... Pursuing Adam and Eve and looking for them and and he comes with that question. Where are you? And and why why is God looking for them is he looking for them so that when they come out of hiding he can like Slap them around smash them bring down the hammer of judgment upon them No, he's not I mean there are consequences of their sin that God says yeah like these are real and you're gonna live with these But do you remember what else God does um What does he do when he finds the man and woman hiding? Here's what he does. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, he clothes them. And he clothes us. And, And so the breastplate of righteousness is something that God provides. It's not something we have to cobble together by our accomplishments, our religiosity, our faithfulness. It is sure and strong because it's not something that we've put together. Gosh, if it was something that we cobbled together, it would just be so weak, be so frail. It would not be a strong and sure defense against the devil's attacks, but it belongs to God. It's from him and not from us. It's sure and strong because, um, family do you see, it is nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's nothing other than Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Now. That's a weird idea, that someone else could be my righteousness, because uh, I assume that you're like me in this way. Like I go around a lot of the time just like trying to cobble it together, saying like, I'm gonna be responsible for my righteousness. If I have any righteousness, it's gotta come from somewhere in me. And so it's weird to think that someone else could be our righteousness. Um, How can Jesus be our righteousness? I wonder that. And uh, there are a lot of ways to get at this. but I, I remember this this episode from the Old Testament that I think could help get at this. We'll see. It's a place where uh, you remember this. It's a place where Abraham is praying to God to spare Sodom, which is this you know city full of evil and wickedness. Um, uh, Ezekiel says that the sin of Sodom is that like they didn't take care of the poor and needy among them, like they were prideful. Uh, just this evil place, and Abraham decides, I'm going to intercede on behalf of Sodom. And so he asks God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And that seems like a fair question. Uh, I mean, it seems to us, in fact, like it would be very wrong for God to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That doesn't sound like justice, does it? Um, but the reason that doesn't sound like justice to us and the reason it doesn't sit well with us is mainly because we live in just like this like, hyper-individualistic culture, one of the most individualistic cultures the world has ever known. And so for the most part, we reject the idea of corporate responsibility. We think if that person sins, that's his problem and the guilt is his alone, and we don't want to be held responsible for the failings and sins of like our fathers or our father's fathers or our race or our people, we want to say like, I'm responsible for my own record, and you're responsible for your record. And uh, Abraham's culture back then and plenty of other cultures today are just way more balanced than we are. Um, They don't reject individual responsibility, but they also recognize corporate responsibility. And so when an individual fails, um, they're able to see it's actually the failure of the whole community. And when one family member sins, the whole family is, in some way responsible and the guilt of a part is actually able to affect the guilt of the whole group the unrighteousness of an individual can make the whole group unrighteous and we have an expression for this right we what do we say about apples we say one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel um, there's actually a uh, I just saw this headline this past week there's like some big national or it's getting headlines nationally, a trial going on about a, a kid, a teenager, young kid, who um, committed a mass shooting and his parents are being uh, tried for his crime. And uh, when, as soon as you start to hear the details, you think, oh yeah, they, yeah that makes sense. Um, Abraham would say, yeah, they should, they bear responsibility, but it's not just his parents, it's like the whole community. Like what's going on in a culture where this just happens over and over and over again? The whole community bears responsibility for this. So Abraham begins to wonder, okay, that's the way it is. Are there other options? Are there other options? And he starts asking God questions. He says, he says, God, uh, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? What if there are 50? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in the city? So what's Abraham asking? Like the conventional wisdom of his day says uh, that the guilt of a few can destroy uh, the whole community and that the wicked people can bring God's judgment on the whole city. And Abraham is asking, could it work the other way around? He's saying, Lord, I know you are a God who loves justice and righteousness. Could it be that you love justice and righteousness so much that uh, the justice and righteousness of um, like some subset of the city Could be enough to spare the whole place if the guilt of some can lead to condemnation for all could it be possible for the righteousness of some to lead to forgiveness for all Um, and and so like that's an amazing question do you see that it's an amazing question like abraham you can pray and do theology at the same time that's what abraham is showing us He's, he's he's asking like if the guilt of another person with whom i'm in solidarity can make me guilty well what about righteousness Could the righteousness of another person with whom I'm in solidarity make me righteous? It's an amazing question and it gets an amazing response because you remember, what does God say? God says, sure. He says, yeah. He says, yeah, that'll work. He says, that'll work. Uh, The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And so Abraham has just discovered something incredible that God can spare the unrighteous many for the sake of the righteous few. Uh, Like, he has discovered nothing less than a way for sinners to be saved. You see that? And and so the next obvious question is, like, how far does it go? And that's exactly what Abraham asks. He says, now that I have been, and the way he asks is so great, um, because it's very self-deprecating and reverential. He says, now that I have been so bold uh, as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will he destroy the whole city because of five people? So, so he's saying, like, five, what, what if they're just 45 and not five? Is, is that five really going to make that big of a difference, guy? And, and God says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham says, okay, well, what about 40? And God says, yeah, that'll work. What about 30? Yep, that works. Um, 20, Abraham gets to. He goes down to 10. He gets all the way down to 10 people. He discovers that 10 people, 10 righteous people, would be enough to save the whole city. And then he just stops. He goes home. (laughs) Um, But what's the question that, like, we just are dying for Abraham to ask. Like, what if there's just one righteous person, right? Like, would the righteousness of one person be enough to save the whole place? I don't know why Abraham doesn't ask. I mean, it, it it could be because he's just beginning to realize, like, wait a second, I can't even think of 10. <laughs> uh, like, like, maybe he just knows that there wouldn't be a righteous person, so he doesn't bother asking. Um, but he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask. And because he doesn't ask, we have to wait for God's answer. But family, we do get it. You know, one of the things we see about Jesus is that uh, I figure he loved fig leaves just as much as the next guy, but he never used fig leaves to cover himself. He didn't use the good gifts of God as a way of trying to, um, to make himself pleasing to God. or in, He never twisted um, the good gifts uh, to, to create a distance between himself and other people. Instead, what does he do? Like He moves out in perfect love for people, and he moves out with a heart and soul and mind just full of love for God. Like, and so here's one man, like one righteous Adam who loves God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who really loves his neighbor as himself. And when the snake meets him in the desert and throws at him all the temptations and tests that human life brings, like this one righteous Adam remains faithful through all of it. He doesn't doubt God's love. He doesn't reject God's grace. He just... um, he lives in it. He rests in it. He, he keeps facing his father. Um, and he keeps loving his father. And so here's one Adam who doesn't have to live in shame. Uh, here's, here's one who knows who he is, who hears God's words. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he doesn't say, oh, that can't be true. He believes it, trusts it, and then he lives out of that place of radical security. And then at the end, he takes all of your shame and my shame and your sin and my sin and all of our failure to love and all of our distrust and all of our lack of faith and he just bears and lives out the dark consequences of it. He's stripped of his clothing. He's mocked and he's scorned and he's nailed to a cross. He enters into our darkness and he um, bears the cursed consequences of our unrighteousness. And he takes it all into the grave with him and he leaves it there. And three days later, he walks out. And family, that's how God saves us. And it's a mystery, right? Like, I can't explain the mechanics of that. Like, I don't, there's, there's, we're probing at a mystery, but that is how God saves us. Like, that's how God provides us with the righteousness we need. Like, what if there was just one righteous person? Could it be that God values righteousness so much that one righteous person would be enough to save the whole place and family I mean, the answer is yes god would say yeah that works that works you know paul tells us in second corinthians that for our sake god made jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god in romans we read this as one tras- <clears throat> excuse me as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, that's what Abraham was asking about. But now we see how far it goes. The sin of Adam brought judgment on, on the whole group, and the faithfulness of Jesus can bring righteousness for the whole group. Adam's failure counted for you, but so does Jesus' faithfulness. And so God is just, he's taking what is his, and he's saying, it's yours. He's saying it's yours. He's taking his righteousness, and he's saying, this is now your righteousness, and it is like a breastplate for you. Um, He's saying, Paul is saying, uh, put it on. And see, that's why it's essentially the same as Paul saying elsewhere, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one and the same thing one and the same thing. It means seeing and trusting his sufficiency for you. It means seeing and trusting that his life and death and resurrection, and not Adam's sin, but the life and resurrection of Jesus. That is the truest thing about you. You know, we can grow pretty fond of our fig leaves. <laughs> um, I, I catch myself doing this a lot like I find myself wanting to take partial credit for my salvation. I want to say that my right standing with God, uh, yeah, I mean God does most of the work, but then I, I gotta'm just desperate to contribute something um, like, I, like I, want, I want at least some of my righteousness to be the result of my spiritual effort and discipline and accomplishment and I, I just and I wonder if I, like at the end of the day it's because um, I don't want my righteousness to have to rely entirely on another human being who was just like me in every way. Except without sin. Yeah. That's humbling, isn't it? Say, here's a person who's just a 100% human being who just does it all better. <laughs> Sometimes I want to take partial credit for my salvation and I think that's the devil. I think that's the devil saying, Kevin, fig leaves. What about your fig leaves? Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God and to stand against his schemes. Um, what does that look like practically? I mean, I think it makes all kinds of practical differences, wearing the breastplate of righteousness, that is. Uh, here's one. Here's one that, that you will experience this week. The devil is going to come at you with accusation. Uh, He's going to point out ways that you fail to measure up, and he's going to call to mind your sin, and he's going to rub your nose in it, and he's going to do everything he can to keep you from experiencing and trusting and resting in God's love and forgiveness. And um, remember that the devil's not the only one who does that. Well, (laughs) he's the only one who rubs your nose in it. The devil's not the only one who's going to call to mind your sin. Who else does that? The Holy Spirit, yeah? The Holy Spirit will call to mind our sin. Um, uh, he, he will bring conviction of sin. Um, but there's a big difference between being convicted of sin and being accused of sin. Big difference. The devil will say, you've sinned, and so you've got to run and hide from God. And the Holy Spirit will say, um, you've sinned, and so you need to run to God and hide in him. Um, The devil will say, uh, like, this is sin, and, and look at you, you're naked, you're naked. And so be ashamed, and try to clothe yourself, and the Holy Spirit will say, this is sin, but you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and so you can boldly approach the throne of grace, just like any other day, just like any other day. I mean, do you understand the difference, family? The devil will say, um... You've sinned and God doesn't want to see you. And the Holy Spirit will say, you've sinned and God wants nothing more than to see you. And not so that he can, like, slap you around. He wants to see you so that he can heal you, so that he can forgive you, so that he can clothe you. And so, family, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.